6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Misser completes his session entitled, How Sure Can We Be? What I mean by one chance in a hundred, what do I mean by that? Well, the way I demonstrate that is I might get a bucket, I would put in that bucket 100 silver dollars. I'd take one of them and mark it with some lipstick or nail polish or something, and I'd mix them all up. And the chance of my reaching in there and picking one at random is one chance in a hundred of getting the one I marked. You with me? That's a way of demonstrating what I mean by that stochastic, that's a, a stochastic statement. Most people are not familiar with dealing with that. So what I need to do to demonstrate this probability that we're talking about here is I need a bucket that will hold 10 to the 17th silver dollars. That turns out to be a pretty big bucket. That's a lot of silver dollars. In fact, if I want a bucket of 10 to the 17th silver dollars, I need to take the state of Texas, the state of Texas, and fill it with silver dollars, and it'll end up being about two feet deep. That's 10 to the 17th silver dollars. So, uh, what I would do then is pick one of you, blindfold you, and put you into a situation where you have an equal likelihood of being exposed to any particular... I, I mix them up in such a way and route you in such a way that you have an equal chance of getting any one of those silver dollars. When you, You're going to reach down there with your blindfold and pick one. The chance that you got the one we marked is one chance in 10 to the 17th. Does that get it across? So you're with me so far. You recognize that? You, it's a way of demonstrating just how unlikely that is. But we're not through. I said we had 300 silver, uh, prophecies to deal with. We took eight of them. Let's assume I take another eight. So I have 16 altogether. To spare you the time, we're not going to actually pick up another eight. But if we did, the eight that I would add would be more technical, more precise, less likely. I'm going to assume, for this simple analysis, that the next eight are no less likely than the ones I've already picked. That's a very generous assumption, obviously. So I've got 300 to choose from. The next eight would be more specific, that is less likely than the previous ones. But I'm going to assume no decrease in likelihoods. I'm just going to add eight of an equivalent kind. So now I have 10 to the 28th times 10 to the 28th. We add the exponents, so that's one chance in 10 to the 56th. But again, I subtract out my 10 to the 11th population. So I now I have a 10 to the 45th, okay? So now I, want, I need a bucket of silver dollars that'll hold 10 to the 45th silver dollars. That's a lot of silver dollars. Let me give you a feeling for how many that is. How big a bucket do I need? I need to make a ball of silver dollars that is 30 times the radius of the earth to the sun. Can you imagine that? You can't imagine that many. 30 times the distance of the earth to the sun. A ball of silver dollars. 
Now in this case, we'll get our volunteer that's going to pick, we, and we've marked one of these, and mix them all up. I get one of you blindfolded and in a spacesuit, and send them out there under conditions that would make it equally likely to be exposed to any of them. And you reach in, and if you pick the one that we marked, that's one chance in 10 to the 45th. So, I'm going to do this one more time, because I, I say this is getting a little ridiculous, Chuck. This time, I'm, instead of doubling, I'll just triple. I'll go from, from 16, I'll go to 48. Bear in mind, I got 300 to choose from, but I'm going to reach a little further. And I'm going to, again, assume there's no decrease in likelihoods. Actually, I can find prophecies there that are so rare they stand on their own in terms of this kind of analysis. But let's just assume the rest of them, to make up 48, are no less likely than the first eight we picked. Well, that's 10 to the 28th multiplied by itself six times, or 10 to the 168. And now I have to subtract my 10 to the 11th out of there, so that's 10 to the 157th. That's a pretty big number. <laughs> How big is it? Well, the first problem I've got is that silver dollars won't work. They're way too big. I need something small. I need the smallest thing you can imagine. What is the smallest thing you can imagine? An atom. Huh? How's that? It may surprise you to learn that there are estimates of the number of atoms in our galaxy. Uh, I want to make a ball of every atom in our galaxy. It turns out there's a commonly accepted estimate among scientists about 10 to the 66th atoms in our galaxy. Well, that, that means if I make a ball of every atom, if I'm going to consider them as, as my sample, um, that's, I'm way short of what I need. I need 10 to the 157th. Okay, so I'll make such a ball for each atom in the universe. So now I've got 10 to the 66th times 10 to the 66th. Well, that's 10 to the 132nd. I'm still far short of 10 to the 157th. Okay, I've got a ball for every atom in the universe consisting of as many atoms as there are in the universe. I'm going to imagine that crazy exercise happening every second since the universe began. Well, that's about 10 to the 17th seconds, if you do the math. Now I'm still only 10 to the 149th. I've made a ball of atoms, equal to all the atoms in the universe. I'm going to do that for each atom in the universe, and I'm going to do that whole silly thing every second for 16 billion years. Is that a big number? I am still short of my 157th. In fact, I'm short by over 100 million to one. And you say, now you say, okay, this is pretty silly. What, what, what do you, what, what's your point? Here's my point. I am more convinced that Jesus Christ was the Messiah of Israel than I am more convinced of that than I am of any other fact in my command. I am more convinced of His identity than I am my own. Now, I have no reason to doubt my identity. I've got a birth certificate. I know my parentage, etc. It's nothing, there's no little gimmick here. And yet, I also realize I know I'm, I could not attach this kind of certainty to any other fact I know of. We've only dealt with 48 of 300. So you can get some idea why some of those estimates aren't that critical. You follow me? If I could make them even looser, you're still beyond the realm of reasonable doubt. And incidentally, in going through this little exercise, I've missed the most amazing ones. 
his detailed genealogy. You can do an analysis of the genealogy of Jesus Christ and be astonished at the precision of issues that are tucked in that genealogy. I won't do it now because we'll do that when we get into uh, Luke and so forth about the virgin birth and all of that and the daughters of Zelophehad and the blood curse pronounced on Jeconiah and so on. The specific identification, prediction of the precise day that the Messiah would present himself as king to Jerusalem, that which we encountered in Daniel chapter 9, take that one prophecy alone and it is equivalent to everything we've done so far. That one alone. Astonishing precision. And there's a whole bunch of Old Testament Midrashic prophecies and other ones. What we're dealing here with is what I call the scarlet thread. It starts with God's declaration of war on Satan in the, in the book of Genesis, in which uh, God indicates to Adam and Eve that his plan of redemption will involve the human race. This is not going to be a super angel. It's not going to be some other uh, thing. It's going to involve a man, but it's going to be a perfect man. In fact, it's going to involve a nation being called. We find that out in Genesis 12 and following. Abraham was called. And so it's not only, not only come from the human race, it's going to come from a specific subset of that, namely the nation Israel. In fact, within that, it's going to come from a particular tribe, the tribe of Jacob. And within that, it's going to be from the family of David. The precision here is astonishing. Now, one of the interesting things to discover is as God progressively focuses on His plan of redemption, as He reveals the details of His plan throughout the Scripture, that gives Satan an opportunity to try to thwart it. You can study your Bible from cover to cover from the point of view of Satan's attempt to thwart the plan of God. As God reveals another little glimmer of insight, it allows Satan to focus more. When God announces that it's going to come from the human race, that allows Satan the, the opportunity to try to corrupt the human race. And that's what led to the hybrids and all that weird stuff going on in Genesis 6 and subsequently. When God calls Abraham in Genesis 12 and following, now Satan can focus on the descendants of Abraham to try to thwart it. And Satan has contrived all kinds of hassles for, for Abraham. The famine in uh, Genesis 50 that finally gets them down to, to Egypt and all the rest. When you get down to, to Egypt, the destruction of the male line by the pharaohs was an attempt. But of course one was secreted out as you all know the story of Moses and so on. Even after Pharaoh finally, after the death of the firstborn and all that, he finally lets them go, but then he repents of that and goes after them to try to wipe out the nation. Pharaoh's pursuit. These, each one of these things is Satan's attempt to somehow thwart God's plan. When God tells Abraham that his people will return to Canaan after 400 years, that gave Satan 400 years to lay down a minefield by again using the Nephilim, the Rephaim, the corrupt tribes within the land of Canaan. That's why God told Joshua to wipe out every man, woman, and child of certain tribes. He had a gene pool problem. But then in 2 Samuel 7, when God goes even further and says it's going to come not only out of Abraham and out of Judah and so forth, it's going to be out of the family of David. That allows Satan to focus on the family of David. And we find all kinds of attacks on David's line. 
Jehoram kills all his brothers, but he misses one. The Arabians slew all, but Hezariah. Athaliah, the queen, uh, kills all, but Joash is, is, is spared. There's always a plot where some servant hides a baby and saves the day, you know, but the attacks again and again. King Hezekiah is assaulted and so forth, Isaiah 36 and 38. We get to the book of Esther. The whole plot line of Haman was to wipe out all the Jews in Persia. That was satanic in its root because he's trying to thwart the plan of God. If Haman had succeeded, there would have not been a temple. There would not have been a Redeemer. Those things, there are major, very cosmic issues underlying each one of these. When you get to the New Testament, it doesn't change. Joseph finds his betrothed is pregnant. He's fear for, fierce for her. But God sends an angel, and you know the story. Herod attempts to wipe him out. When he gets the vision from the Magi, he realizes that there's a contender out there. He slaughters all the children two years and younger. And that was all predicted in the Scripture, and he does that. He attempts to do that. When Jesus opens his ministry at Nazareth, they try to throw him off a cliff. He slips away. In the Gospel period, there are two storms at sea, and those storms should not be underestimated. Those ships in those storms were manned by professional seamen who knew those waters. They knew what they were doing. They knew those waters. They were terrified. I'm going to suggest to you that those storms weren't normal storms. And I suggest there's also something else. But when Jesus calms them, it says, He rebuked the sea. No, I think, that they, I think they were satanic in their origin, personally. And of course, the ultimate strategy was the cross. And, and there's a summary of all of this in Revelation chapter 12, which we'll touch on when we get there. But the key point I want to get across is Satan is not through yet. He's not through yet. He knows that there is a prerequisite condition of the second coming of Jesus Christ, and that's for the nation of Israel to repent and to petition His return. And that's why He's after the believing Jews. The Jews that have accepted Christ are marked by Satan as targets. 8,000, 8,300 predictive verses according to one category. 1,800 predictions on 700 different matters. The Bible is prophecy. There are no other equivalents on the planet Earth. The Islam's Quran does not stand up under scholastic scrutiny in a lot of ways, but it certainly does not hang its reputation on its ability to predict the future. It can't even get its own historical facts straight. The Hindus Veda, the Bhagavad Gita, the Book of Mormon, none of these, all these religious books have no concept of hyperspaces that we now know exist. The Bible does. None of these have the audacity to hang their credibility on their ability to lay out history before it happens. Nostradamus, centuries, those ambiguous things. Occultic mediums, channelers, New Age spirit guides, what have you. None of them hold a candle to what the Bible has said all along. These specifications are filled. He would be born of a virgin, and he was. He'd be born in Bethlehem, and he was. He'd be taken into Egypt, according to Hosea 11.1. 1. And he was, according to Matthew 2. In fact, when you go to Ethiopia, it's kind of interesting. You find those episodes of Mary and Joseph and the child visiting the temple that was set up in uh, the town of Kirkus Island back in those days. He would heal the sick and make people whole, according to Isaiah 53. And he did, according to Matthew 8. He would be crucified, according to Psalm 22 and many other passages. And he was, in Matthew 27. He would die for our sins, according to Isaiah 53. And indeed, he did. 
as is all through the New Testament. He would be raised from the dead, the Scripture predicts, and indeed He was. Beside the Messianic prophecies, the other thing that I want to establish some sensitivity on your part for is the major prophetic themes that occur through the Scripture. Not just Jesus, but also Israel, the nation Israel. Its origin, its ups, its downs, and its destiny is all laid out in advance. And the attack by the world on the Abrahamic covenant, God's covenant of the land to Israel, is a, the world's attempt to thwart, Satan's attempt to thwart that prophecy. But he that keepeth Israel neither slumber nor sleep, the Scripture assures us. But it will be troubled at times there. The city of Jerusalem, the entire world going to war against Jerusalem. That's coming. The city of Babylon is destined for a dramatic destruction that it has never seen. And it's, becoming, it's beginning to get rebuilt. It has a destiny, according to the Scripture, of emerging as a major power center on the planet Earth. We're going to watch that in front of our eyes, and you're going to find many, many Bible-believing people caught by surprise because of their lack of re recognizing the precision of God's Word. Russia is going to invade the Middle East, and God is going to intervene in that invasion in a very dramatic way. Russia and her allies are all detailed there. The technology of the weapons is all detailed there. The rise of China as a superpower, probably the dominant fact of the next few decades in front of us is the emergence of China as a, uh, not only an uh, economic giant, but as a military giant with major, major concerns over the Middle East. China and Europe are desperate for energy, for oil. We want it too, but we have alternatives. They don't. So they're on a collision course. Europe and China are on a collision course over the Middle Eastern oil. Watch that be, that's going to be an increasingly important subject forthcoming. The rise of Europe as a superstate, recognized by many prophecy buffs for some of the right reasons and some of the wrong reasons. Um, the rise of the Antichrist, I don't think, will be from Europe. He'll be from the Middle East. He'll be from Assyria. The scripture makes that pretty clear, I think. And while all this is going, the Bible talks about a one-world Christian uh, pseudo-religion, a pseudo-Christian religion, ecumenical religion. It's not the New Age. Some people figure it's the New Age. No, it's going to be a, a Christ replacement kind of thing. The anti word antichristos in the Greek means a pseudo-Christ, a false Christ. And while all this is going on, there's going to be a, a, attempts to establish a global government. You know, you read these things in the Bible, it sounds like you're cribbing from today's newspaper. And of course, while all this is going on, there'll be a rise of the occult in ways that we can't even imagine. So that leads to the challenge that I've made several times in this study. I want you, if you accept what I put on the screen, you flunk this course. I want you to challenge this preposterous statement. I'm suggesting that we are being plunged into a period of time about which the Bible says more than it does about any other period of time in history, including the time that Jesus walked the shores of Galilee or climbed the mountains of Judea. Now that's an audacious statement. 
Because the Bible has a lot to say about the gospel period, obviously. But I'm going to suggest to you that it even says even more about what's coming. For every one of those 300 prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ's first coming, there are at least seven for each one of those of a second coming and things related to it. Now, how do you challenge this rather audacious statement? You need to do two things if you're going to be a competent steward. One is you've got to find out what the Bible says, not what Chuck Missler says or and whoever your favorite teacher might be. No, no, find out what the Bible says for yourself. I believe God will reveal you, uh, things to you that no one else has seen yet. There's, a pro there's prophecies to that effect in my mind. That's part A. Part B of the assignment, find out what's going on, and you won't on the 10 o'clock news. You've got to find out what's going on in Israel, Jerusalem, in Russia, Europe, China, and our country, and so forth. And we try to monitor 10 strategic trends, probably more than a dozen now, okay, we're going to add a few. As we, we've been monitoring these trends for a better part of it, more than a decade, through various intelligence sources we have, and are trying to continue to cultivate. And we publish these in forms of briefing packages on each one, but even more to the point, we publish a little uh, uh, newsletter. It's free on the internet. little one-pager, we call it e-news. At no cost to you, if you sign up on it, give us your email address and we'll send you a little one page every week of what's happened this week that's biblically relevant and the links on the internet that are following that development company. Most of those are not Christian things, they're intelligence sources of different kinds. And just the fact that it's on the internet doesn't make it reliable. We try to highlight the ones that are reliable, that are tracking the particular development you're interested in, whether it's in Jerusalem or China or whatever. Every week you'll get it. It's no charge. This is just something we do. Because we're trying to get you to be a prophecy buff? Not really. That's not the point. We want to continually make you aware that this book is what it claims to be. It's a living word. The prophecy emphasis is just, we treat it not so much as, we're not trying to predict the future. We're using it as an apologetic. It's a demonstration that God means what He says and says what He means and He authenticates Himself several ways, but prophecy is one of them. We're going to show you some others in the next session. So, one of the things that uh, we're going to undertake in the next session is we're going to explore a little bit about the New Testament. We've, we've finished the Old Testament. That's sort of behind us now for, as far as our project's concerned. We're, in the next session, we're going to move into a look at the New Testament. And, but before we get plunge into the Gospels and the rest, that'll be the following session, we're going to take a look at how did we get the New Testament. There's a lot of nonsense floating around about the Gnostic Gospels and there are all kinds of people that are attacking the legitimacy of the New Testament, and they do it for money. It's great merchandising. There's authors that made millions by publishing uh, blasphemous novels. But where did we get the New Testament? How do we know it's real? Uh, uh, who decided what makes up the books? And those, we're going to try to talk about that. But more importantly, we're going to show you a way to prove to yourself its authenticity. It may surprise you. It'll be a fun session. But the main thing, as we've, got, we've just finished a unit now with the Old Testament behind us, one of the things I'm hoping has already started to happen, and I certainly hope it'll happen before we're through, is a transition taking place from being a serious student, taking notes and understanding the book that we're saying, to where you're really beginning to get a relationship with its author. 
with the Lord Jesus Christ, because He's alive today. And the reason we're doing this is for you to develop a personal relationship. It doesn't matter what church you go to. It doesn't matter what denominational affiliations you found comfortable. That's not the issue at all. The issue is your personal relationship with Him personally. And that's, what, that, that's the whole ballgame. And hopefully this is all a means to an end. The more you know about the Bible, the more you'll know about Him. And the more you know about Him, the more uh, you'll realize who He is, and He'll become a moment-by-moment personal resource to you. So that's it for this session. Let's close with, with a word of prayer. Father, we just thank You for the confidence that we can have in Your Word. We thank You, Father, that You've gone to such extremes to communicate Yourself to us and to communicate to us Your plan of redemption to extricate us from the predicament that we find ourselves in. We thank You, Father, that You've provided a destiny for us that's too fantastic for us to possibly deserve or to earn our way to. Yet rather, Father, You have paid the full price for that destiny on our behalf. We just pray, Father, that through Your Holy Spirit You would continue to illuminate Your Word, that we might more fully appreciate what You have done and what You are doing and what You will do. But above all these things, Father, we pray that You'd help each of us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ that we each might thus become more pleasing in Your sight, that we each might become better stewards of the opportunities that You've placed before us. As we commit ourselves into Your hands without any reservation, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station, or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.